Hello and welcome to Unsourced Soul. My name is Elvis and as always, I'm your host. Alright, there's going to be a lot of things to talk about, especially a lot of things I didn't expect to review. So I'm going to try and keep the news topic short. And that's a good thing because there's only a couple of things to even talk about. Like the fact that The Flash, Shazam, and Batman all got delayed. I think Shazam and Batman have been delayed until mid to late 2022. So WB is basically just trying to play it as safe as possible because these are big temple movies or at least franchises they want to cultivate and they're basically writing off the rest of 2020 and entirely 2021. So that's a shame. I was really especially hopeful about where Batman was going because that trailer was fantastic and Shazam because I love the first movie and by the time the second movie comes out or even gets made these characters are going to be in college so that's a shame i love that david f sanders made a joke about this too when he tweeted about it showing like a, a face app aged up version of zachary levy and the kid who played freddie freeman i thought that was taking it all in good humor and hopefully when a sequel comes out it's able to feel like a proper sequel not something that's been delayed for like five years as for the flash there's no love lost there i just really hope it gets canceled way before then and our next news topic is that there is apparently a batmobile animated series in the works and well i guess the teen titans gonna be got one thing right because that was a joke in that and now we're actually getting one i think it's called bat wheels or something kudos i think that if they're going to be trying to pivot dc streaming options toward hbo max this is the kind of weird ridiculous stuff they're gonna have to try and shop around and hopefully make work you gotta really make use of these properties i just hope it wasn't gonna be directly batman again but you know, fingers crossed it'll be fun and something that's pretty light and entertaining anyway that's really it for news this week let's move on to what i read this week and boy do we have a bunch of things to talk about because first off excess swords chapters three to five aka wolverine x-force and marauders this is gonna be a bit of a quick one because while i thought x factory's baton pass last week was a perfect example of how different writers can develop and carry through on a long spanning event plot this week really fumbles the bag by having it become dragged down and slogged over in one direction. It's basically just two issues with very little going on, rather than three concise, engaging, entertaining chapters in the story. What I'm trying to say is that Wolverine and X-Force, both written by Benjamin Percy, are just one long Wolverine issue. And to be blunt, the Wolverine ongoing as it stands, before the event even started, just sucked. It was boring, overcooked meandering and just so detached from any actual emotional excitement and now this week we have a double dose of it instead of say developing the cerebro sword or whatever has been going on x-force that would be more entertaining and so that's a shame i glazed over multiple times and i'm not sad to say that i mean for both of those issues two thumbs down there was so much more they could have done with this instead of just giving us two really bland wolverine asides Getting an immortal sword from a sociopathic demon shouldn't be this tedious. As for chapter 5, the Marauders issue, it was fine. It was a short and sweet done-in-one adventure where Storm has to acquire a sword. It's not groundbreaking or plot-heavy, but it's a well-played character piece that gives Storm's arc more room to breathe, and it's well worth it. So one thumb up, one thumb up for that one. Hopefully next week is better. And next up we have American Vampire 1976, number 1. And we finally reached the end arc of American Vampire, and honestly, it started better than I expected it would. I was reluctant at first about the chances that Snyder would actually be putting any effort into this as the final American Vampire story. I mean, Second Cycle had been cancelled and he ignored it all in favor of putting more attention to his god-awful Just a League epic. And it just seemed like when this was announced to only be a 9 issue miniseries, that it would just be a last gasp and cash grab for a once great series. But no, it's not really that. It feels like a return to form, a return to an old friend. 
Sure, time has passed, and I don't think this issue does a great job at patching up from where Second Cycle left off, but it's a passage of time that feels more earned than it should. It feels weary, it feels aged, and it feels like things are dying down. I mean, Skinner Sweet is dying, America is turning 200, and even Travis Kidd is a middle-aged old man. It's truly the end of an era. And it's a note that Snyder hits perfectly. I mean, ending this story about the one-of-a-kind American vampire at the bicentennial of America, that's kind of inspiring. This could have had story arcs lasting all the way to the present day, but ending it at such a historical moment gives it a little bit more oomph, a little bit more poetry. It's not perfect, the jump and stiltedness is always going to be there, but it does feel like it's starting toward an ending. Just an ending we didn't get all the foundation for. Maybe in the upcoming 8 issues we'll get more retroactive payment, and fingers crossed for that. But for now, just seeing Skinner, Pearl, and Travis back again for one last hurrah was enough. And just seeing Snyder be able to write again after so long just felt like a really great thing. I forgot how much I enjoyed Snyder's writing when he wasn't being a complete buzzkill about his own attempts at being over the top. Like, American Vampire 1976 really reminds you that Snyder can write some really entertaining over-the-top wacky bullshit and actually not cut himself off and let it breathe, which is refreshing to say the least. So yeah, one thumb up, one thumb middle. Now I can move on to what I watched this week, and this is going to be a bit of a doozy, because I'm going to start out with something that I never thought I'd say. CBR was right. I'm sorry, CBR, because for this week's what I watched this week, I'm going to be reviewing the first three episodes of Fargo Season 4. Because yes, it actually is a new God show, and that is incredible. Now you might understand why in previous episodes I was reluctant to join in on the clickbait speculation about this, because, well, the idea of a gangster show that's also a period piece somehow being a fourth-world adaptation sounded ridiculous especially on evidence as flimsy as the two mob factions trade sons. Because that's an old conceit that's been used in a bunch of different genres. I mean, Game of Thrones even used it. But yeah, I admit that I was wrong. It really is a new god show, and a very cleverly handled one. It would have to be to translocate the cast of characters and themes of the new gods to a whole new genre, setting, and world. And it pulls it off by doing some pretty pragmatic things. It's not a one-to-one -one adaptation. It can't be. There are some direct analogs, to be sure, like how there's a Hemon counterpart, and that Chris Rock is basically Isaiah the Conqueror, who was given a speech that is almost verbatim out of the pact and the lesson Isaiah learns in the issue, and even a grand goodness. But other things have to be compromised, merged, or kind of worked around in order to create its own flavor, its own text. One of the best examples of this is how it's handling the characters who I believe to be counterparts to Mr. Miracle and Orion. Where Mr. Miracle here is a young black teenage girl, and the upbringing Scott had in Granny's Soldier Boy Academy is almost entirely parallel by the girl's experiences having to traverse a hostile, discriminatory school environment. But there are also some shades of Barda, which become clear when it turns out that her aunts are the female Furies, and that she slightly bonds with them. As for Orion, he's still this sullen mess that has an incredibly tortuous complex about his identity, who he really is, and where he really belongs. He's misanthropic, but has a gentle soft side that just needs submerging. Yet, there's still this steeply seated rage brewing beneath. It's wonderful and shows the complexities of the character more so than comics have in years. Oh, and Calabag is actually two characters in this one, so that's fun. So far, I don't expect the show to follow the storyline. Right now, it's just using some of the themes, but it's still very much its own gangster mob show. But it's really fascinating to see these archetypes and roles being dropped into a wholly new arena and just being left to run amok. In a way, it's kind of that perfect adaptation of Morrison's throwaway Seven Soldiers idea of having reincarnated, grounded, street-level, fourfold characters. And I always wanted that, so fingers crossed that it keeps it up. It's going wild places, and to give an example, it might have introduced a character that could either be the Black Racer or Light Ray. Overall, so far, two thumbs up, I'm having a great time, and if you love the fourth world, please check it out. I think you're going to have a 
kick of a time with this. And lastly, we move on to the first winner of this year's third annual Unsourced Wall Halloween Blowout Poll. The original Spawn movie starring Michael J. White as Spawn, John Leguizamo as the clown, and Michael Sheen as Jason Wynn. And it is a trip. It's a movie that is so thoroughly 90s cool that doesn't know exactly how uncool and dorky it really is. It's the definition of trying too hard. And not even the fun kind of trying too hard where it decides to be as radical and as edgy and as over the top as it possibly can be. No, it's the kind of trying too hard where it has absolutely no effort given to it, but acts like it's doing the most over-the-top radical energy shit, when it's basically just being tepid and vanilla as lukewarm milk. What I'm trying to say is that it's the movie equivalent of Mac from Always Sunny Philadelphia prancing around on the stage doing karate chops as a nightman in Charlie's play. It doesn't even let you think otherwise for even a single frame. The movie begins with this tone, with a terrible screensaver looking fire backdrop and a crow flying across it as Kane's narration just bluntly and stiltedly exposits every little thing about what happened. It's breathtaking. I couldn't breathe. I was in such awe at how all cinematic storytelling convention was strewn out the window. I had to believe, for my own sanity, that this entire prologue was done as a pickup when some exact or test audience couldn't follow the plot because that's the only way this makes sense. I mean, it happens in the dialogue in the movie properly anyway, but I'm just gonna let that slide. The rest of the opening is just as bad because this director cannot direct action at all. It has all the intensity and creativity of a very, very low budget early 80s action film or a current day Steven Seagal action film. It's surprisingly flat looking when the comic this is based off of prides itself on being dynamic. That's basically Image of Comics and Tom McFarlane's whole the work ethos, trying to create the most eye-catching and dynamic imagery and visuals that it can. They were the progenitors of blockbuster comics. And this movie doesn't even try. Hell, even a sci-fi missile explosion is barely more than a static shot from an unimpressive low angle. And that's not even going into the PS1 CGI graphics that accompany it. But that's too low a bar. I can make fun of that as much as they wanted, especially Malibolgia. But apparently the production crew didn't have as much time for things and it seems mean spirited to lay into them for that. I mean, the effects when the clown goes full violator later on are actually pretty damn impressive and still hold up. So I believe that excuse. And honestly, despite all of that, the movie is still a blast. It's a perfect dumb B-movie. Something that is just inept and unqualified and just completely lost in itself that makes its genuine nature and qualities rise to the top. That's a secret ingredient of good B-movies that I said before. And if nothing else, Michael Jai White and John Leguizamo give this movie their all. 100%. They hold nothing back. White, for as underserviced as he is by the action, the writing, the effects, and the tone, really sells that he, at least, believes that he is the coolest piece of shit alive. He brings the swagger, the baritone, and there isn't an actor from the 90s, or even still now, who could really make you believe that languished scream of Wanda. Maybe in an actually spectacular movie, he would have flourished. As it is, he's barely holding this thing together. It doesn't help that there are basically no other characters that can bounce off him well. Sheen barely has any lines of character building. Priest, aka the female chapel stand-in, dies in her third scene. And Kane? Well, he's a narrator guy, and he keeps that exact same tone of voice the entire movie. So, you know, he's not good. But with Leguizamo as a clown, he becomes part of a rather decent classic two-man routine. Now, I'm not going to stand here and pretend the clown can't be overbearing at times. He is. But it's a welcome reprieve from how dull the rest of the movie is. Leguizamo goes nearly full pest and lobs as many quips, one-liners, and skits as he can every chance he gets. And by the rule of odds, more than not, they land. Or they flop so hard it becomes funny all over again. Perhaps the best type he does is that he just takes the piss out of Michael J. White's 
straight-laced, straight-man version of Al Simmons. There's an energy there that not even the most vibrant CGI cape made for the trailer shot can replicate. After that, the movie isn't really that special. The plot is bare bones, the character arcs are almost non-existent, and aside from the clown's jealousy, the stakes aren't even that high or engaging or thrilling. I actually went back and reread the first couple of Spawn issues to prep for this. And yeah, those aren't high art, but it was really done a disservice. Like, they actually still keep you interested and they're fun and they're and they're weird and they have a sense of humor and they feel like they know what they're trying to be even if it's something you know very superficial the movie by comparison didn't even attempt to adapt the clear gimme of the clock's ticking clock angle they might have added some urgency to the movie's plot and please a wordless cameo from simon twitch in the movie that's a shame. Overall, I still really enjoyed watching it. It definitely made me wince and I'm reluctant to really recommend it, but if it's up your alley and you need a rainy day movie for this holiday season, try it out. It's got a lot to offer. Not a lot that's good, but even the stuff that's bad is worth some bluster. Overall, 6 out of 10 and 2 thumbs middle. Anyway, that's it for this week. I just want to say thank you out there to anyone who voted in the poll. That means so much to me. I had to suspend asking for questions because I wanted to focus on that. And I think we're off to a great start, so thank you so much. It means a lot. I just want to say thank you to anyone who's ever sent a question, comment, or topic to the show. I really appreciate that, and I can't wait to get back to that soon. And I just want to give a shout-out to the cover artist for the show at D-O-T-E-M-C-E. Please shout them out. They're amazing, and they deserve all of the credit and all of the traction they can get. So give them a like and give them a follow. They're amazing. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you again next time.